Well, good morning. We're excited that you guys are here, and we got a great announcement coming up I wanted to give to you guys, and it's pertaining our evening, Saturday evening service. We really do feel that that's got the most potential out of all of our services as we're talking about who we're trying to reach out of that service with young families who have sports, uh, sports kids and things like that, and also singles. We feel like it's a great place for single people in our church to gather so they have something to do afterwards, but one of the big problems is always like, well, who's going to man that? Who's going to mine that potential out? And so Bob and Gina, who are up here with me right now, we've asked them to step up and in, in, to be our Saturday service leads. And what we're talking about there is that they're, um, Gina's our family uh, ministry director, and Bob is um, her, her husband. And so the... Uh, no. Yeah, he's an unpaid staff, right? And so the uh, what we what we've asked them to do is kind of grab hold of that service, uh, the pre-service and the posting. So everything from the cornhole that's going on. I think Bob wants to form some leagues and uh, have some fun there, along with just kind of we had pie night last night. If you guys were there, it was awesome. Just having pie and hanging out. About eighty people were there just to kind of be together as a community, and that's all the kind of pieces they're adding to that evening. And also they're trying to form some volunteer teams that are going to be kind uh, actually like the the models for the other uh, other ministry teams as we kind of move from there and into the future. And so if you're interested in helping mine out what the potential is for Saturday night service and help be a part of those volunteer teams, I'd love for you guys to connect with Bob and Gina. Let them know that you'd, be, you'd love to get involved and get engaged with that. But also, we're just going to pray over them and ask God's blessing on them as they step into this role here at our church. So let's do that really quick. Father, I just thank you for Bob. I thank you for Gina. I pray that you would just anoint them with leadership and insight. God, give them wisdom and energy to accomplish the task of reaching out to our community through our Saturday night service. God, let them be uh, leaders to that congregation in that evening and to those who are in need of that time slot. Would you bless them with insight and wisdom and how to lead and guide those things? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So congratulations, you guys. Let's thank them, and we're just excited for what's going to happen. So, We are in a series called Singled In, and we are discussing and talking to those of you who are our single brothers and sisters in the church. And we have been working through a process of talking about value, and last week calling, and looking at all these ideas about single life. Because honestly, our culture and our time, uh, whether it's in the church or out of the church, dismisses, ignores, or just can devalue you as a single person. And so what we've been saying is, no, we want to lift your value back up. We want to talk about these things. And oftentimes it's fixated on this social calendar, this idea that there are certain gates ways and certain hoops you need to jump through and get through as you go through life, that if you miss one of them, what will invariably happen is that you will find yourself um, kind of pressured into, hey, you, why haven't you graduated yet? Hey, why haven't you gotten married yet? Why don't you have kids? That kind of progress in life. And, and so even saying as a singles, you felt the pressure. Why aren't you married? Why aren't you married? Why aren't you married? Why don't you bring a nice guy home? Or where, where's that nice girl in your life? And that pressure can build to a point that um, it, it gets painful. And so what we were talking about is four kingdom reminders, looking at the model single, namely Jesus Christ, and looking at his life and saying, we need to have indicated in our lives these four different reminders. First one being a deep relationship with God, pausing regularly and asking, how am I doing in my relationship with God? Am I getting my value from him or am I gaining my value from something else? A close community, which we'll talk about today. Clear calling, we talked about last week, which the Bible connects the calling and singleness where it really views you as having a gift, an opportunity as a single person to fixate on the kingdom and what God has called you to do and to go after it with all 
tell the gusto that you have. And we looked at that, and then we, we'll look at spiritual family next week, which is different than a close community, as we'll see today. But as I was thinking about calling and bridging it into this conversation about community, it kind of struck me. When I think about the storyline of the Bible, I realized that really the worst thing that was ever given to humanity, namely death, sin, suffering, you know, that horrible junk that's always in our lives and always in our news, that was given to us as human beings by a married couple, namely Adam and Eve, right? I mean, they messed this place up. And yet, when you get to the New Testament and the conclusion of it all, the greatest thing that was ever given to us, the forgiveness of sins, the, redeem, the redemption of our souls, the opportunity to have a, re, a relationship with God, all the way into eternity, was given to us by a single man, namely Jesus Christ. And yet, the work of Jesus and the gift that he gave us would have gone nowhere without his community. There is a necessity of community for the single man and the single woman in this world. In fact, it is a necessity for all of humanity. If, if you go back to the beginning, we drive ourselves all the way back to the, to the beginning part of, of, the, of the Bible. In the Hebrew texts, uh, in the Hebrew scriptures, we get Genesis. And, and God has created mankind in Genesis. And what we know about God, because Jesus rose from the dead, is that Jesus was God, and he, the Spirit is God, and the Father is God. That we got this triune God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, fully God, all, all in this kind of unity and community before time began. And he creates you and me, he creates all humanity in his image to represent them, which means something. That means you and I were made for community. We were made for relationship. You and I have driven into the very care or the core of our character a sense of the need for community. It's no wonder that after you formed the man, he had this sentence. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, I know what some of you ladies are thinking. If you've ever seen a man's bathroom or seen a bachelor's home or, his, uh, or, or, or the way that we sometimes live and men when we gather together what we're like, you're thinking, yes, it is definitely not good for men to be alone. That's, that's, uh, that's not what it's talking about. But what we're looking at here is actually that humanity is not to be without community. It's not good that humanity finds themselves all by themselves. And so God created the woman, in this case, so that Adam would have Eve, and they would produce community. They would produce family that would birth into a city, that would birth into a community, which births into nations, and all of the other pieces that we look at throughout time. But what we see here is that we have conflated a view that we need to be careful about. For, for if you're single or if you're married, the same thing is true. We can read this verse and we can assume that in order to defeat the idea that being alone is bad, the answer is then get married. Isn't that how we could read this? You know, they'll make a helper and fit for them, then they get married. There it is. And the answer is that we need to be careful because a lot of married people, we are taking all of our community eggs and we're putting it into the marriage basket. Marriage cannot sustain all of the community. And we need to be careful about that because a lot of us are just fixating on our families. We're just communing together with our children and our spouse. And, and we're ignoring our neighbors at times, even church members and things like that. We can get overly fixated and singles are losing track and connections with married families. But the danger for you as singles this morning is that you put all of your community eggs in the hope of marriage in the marriage basket. And you can assume that I'm lonely and I feel lonely. And if I got married, that would take care of it. And that's not necessarily true. There's a lot of lonely married people in this world. 
And we cannot take the community need and find it sustained only in marriage. And so what I want to do is show you another way, a way given to us by Jesus, a way by given to us by the model single himself. In fact, if you want to look at it, it's here in Mark chapter 1. And if you want to open a Bible or grab it, you can take it and open it to this eyewitness document given to us by a man named Mark as he's writing down what Peter, the apostle, had experienced with the life of Jesus. And so then this auto, in this biography about Jesus, we, we see some very interesting things. It begins in verse 9, and what we have is this situation in which Jesus has just been baptized by this man named John, and John has just um, brought Jesus up out of the water, and, and Peter explains that out of the sky came the voice of God saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So this deep, intimate relationship, and suddenly it says this about Jesus. In the Spirit immediately drove him, Jesus, into the wilderness. Now, this isn't a wooded wilderness. This is a desert. So we're talking like drove him into the Mojave Desert level wilderness. This is not comfortable. There's lots of lions and other kinds of creatures out there that can kill him, wild animals, as you see. And so while he was in that desert wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan, um, he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. And this is interesting because it indicates that he's being tempted by Satan. Now, I don't think there's probably anybody in this room who's ever probably incurred temptation by Satan himself. Satan in, in the scripture, in the Bible, is indicated as the king or the head, the prince of the cosmic powers of the universe that are in opposition to God. There are fallen angels who are fighting a war against God, seeking to destroy and kill and, and corrupt humanity. And so the head of this demonic horde singles in on Jesus, who's just been declared the Son of God. And so he goes through a process of, of tempting him while he's alone in his hunger and all these other things that we see in other, in other biographies. But in this one, I just want to point out that he goes through this, he comes out, he's being ministered to, and then it says in our, in our Bibles here, it says, after this, John was arrested, the guy who baptized Jesus, and he came, then Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. At this point, we'd expect some kind of miracle story or some kind of teaching or preaching. But what Jesus does next is interesting. It says, verse 16, passing along beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into a sea, for they were both fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now, we oftentimes will fixate on the disciples who drop everything to follow Jesus. But stop here for a minute and think about it. Jesus has just gone from being surrounded by people where they were baptized to isolation. In his isolation, when he's all alone, he is overwhelmed by the temptations and the, ar and the arguments of the enemy. He's been attacked. Only to get out of that situation, and what's the first thing that he does? He builds a community. He starts to pull all kinds of men around him. These men knew him before. They'd met him back when John had baptized him. So these were not strangers to Jesus. And so he's approaching people that he knows, and he's now producing a community that's going to surround him as he preaches the gospel. And I believe what we're seeing is a pattern in the life of Jesus that, he, that is called to all singles, and that is isolation is something that is deadly. So we need to live in community. 
Isolation can destroy. It's when you're alone that you probably sense the temptation the strongest, either to watch that thing you shouldn't be watching, to have those thoughts about yourself because no one else is there to, re- to reflect on those. It's when you oftentimes are the most depressed. It's when you're oftentimes the most troubled is when you're alone. Our flesh is stronger. The society's ideas are more powerful. We have nobody to keep us in support. And isolation is deadly, especially if you're single. And so you need to live in a community, not just any community. I'm not talking about just having people surround you that are breathing and, and have, you know, they put a mirror. Oh, look, yeah, they're good. No, you need, you need something greater than just companions. Jesus didn't call companions. He created a fraternity, or for ladies, a sorority for you. Now, those two terms have been misused by the college world, right? We know the frat house is not necessarily the best thing on the planet. What Jesus was producing, though, was a brotherhood of men, 12 men who would surround him, along with other disciples who would pour into his life, he would use for support, he would live with and connect with. These men became his community, and he created them on purpose. He did not choose marriage he chose a brotherhood. He chose a sisterhood in the sense of a, that, that is what we have and should have for a community. And what I'm going to call those of you who are single too is to build that kind of community. I want you to have this kind of community because guess what? You already know isolation is deadly. I say this to singles and they're like, duh, like I didn't know that. Uh, thanks for pointing out the obvious problem. Okay, so I pointed out the obvious problem. The question is, how do we get there? Now, it's not obvious for everybody. Some of you are starters, and it's not quite obvious yet that isolation is deadly. But as you, <clears throat> between 18 and 30, get moving in life, you, you'll have all these friends. Sometimes you have a good community because you had it in high school, and you have it through college. And you come out, and you keep some of those friends around you. Eventually, some move away, but you gather others. But soon, they start pairing off. They start getting married. And one of two things oftentimes happens. Either the married couples get so fixated on themselves, they stop hanging out with the friends in general, or the single person feels so uncomfortable, they kind of start distancing themselves from the, from the married couples. And eventually, there's a, an isolation that occurs, where I know a lot of single adults who live at, between that 18 and all the way up in 50s, 60s, that they're like, I have to fight for community. I don't know where to find community. Where are all the other single people anymore? Other than a bar or some kind of dance club, where am I going to meet somebody that's also single? And we go with the church, and the church doesn't provide a lot anymore. We don't have singles, ministries, and all these different kinds of things. And so what occurs is that we wind up with this kind of gap. And so some of you who never expected to deal with single issues through divorce or death wind up single going, where do I go from here? Where am I going to connect with somebody? What do I do now? Even more dangerous in many cases are those of you who have entered into widow, widowhood. Either widowers or widows at the end of your life and very re, a very real statistic is you lose 70% of your community when your spouse dies. There's a, a sense of, of, of abandonment that can oftentimes occur from not just your friends who you were both sustaining, but family members as well. And there's a distancing that occurs, and there's a community that shrinks, and there's a sense that you need to focus in on how to build community and how to keep community, and that's what we're going to talk about. How do you build and keep a community 
in our time period. And it's going to take work, and it's not going to be easy, but I want to give you a few ideas that come from the, from, the, from the Scriptures, from the teachings of Jesus and his disciples. And what we see is that Jesus and his disciples, Jesus started with this idea, and, and the disciples kind of take it, and they like riff on it. They like kind of get out there and have their little jazz app, uh, things on it. But the idea is that you should love one another as Jesus has loved you. Love one another, he says, as I have loved you. That's our call. And then the disciples are going to apply that over and over again to multiple different ways. So I want to take these one another's and I want to draw them out so that you learn how to go from having companions to friends to a fraternity or sorority. So companions to friends to fraternity or sorority. Not just companion friends, hey, uh, and then move on to lovers. We're not going to do that. That, That's a different conversation. But what I want to do is focus this in. So how do you do this? Number one is you open your life to others. Now, this may sound obvious, but it's not. You need to open your life to others. Peter, in his letter to the churches, he wrote this, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I love that he adds without grumbling because there's a lot of us, we don't want to show hospitality to people. We're just like, I don't know, because hospitality means I got to love somebody who's different from me. And there are people that are coming up this Thanksgiving you don't want in your home. Isn't that true? And so you got to show hospitality, but you can't grumble. That's what the, the instructions are from Scripture. But what you and I are looking at is that this word hospitality is the word xenophileo. It means the love of the stranger, the other, the one unlike me. And this is huge because guess what? In our culture, how many of you guys were, were raised in, in the 1980s? Any, how many? 80s, okay? 90s, 2000s, okay. On. If you were raised any time after the 1980s, you learned this, that strangers are dangerous, right? We call it stranger danger. Don't talk to the strangers, don't go to the house where they give you candy. They, don't, don't, they'll, they'll give you stuff in your, in your Halloween candy. I mean, there's all this stuff, right? What do you think of the other person? They're scary, frightening. 20 years later, we find out actually it was a myth created in, 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 in Chicago. Nobody ever put can- razor blades in people's candies. It was just this thing that people created because of some urban myths and legends. And strangers are dangerous because they're going to take you and abduct you. Yeah, that happens and it's super, 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 super small in percentages, and yet we are scared to death about the stranger. Case in point, in my house, up comes somebody, and I'll hear this occasionally. And I go, Kit, what? Go see who that is. And my kids are smart. They've learned to crawl up to the window. It's the sales guy. Okay, everybody be quiet. We don't want to talk to him. Right? It's a, or, or worse is you go like, knock, 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 and I'm like, uh, yeah, the door's this open, right? Hello? It's like, what am I hiding from you? The door will protect me. Who is this stranger? Don't come in. And, and what we're doing here is it's so funny. You ever see that guy parked at the park in his car, just sitting there? I bet you don't have good thoughts about him. Because you've been trained to think negatively about people you don't know. And when we do that, Henry Nouwen has a whole book called Reaching Out. He wrote it in the 1970s. It says, and he was arguing against the loneliness epidemic that hadn't even started yet, but he was seeing it. And he argued the problem in our society is we're teaching people to be hostile to the stranger and not hospitable. And the second you start with hostility, you are planning to produce an enemy. 
If you're in junior high or high school, learn to be hospitable. Do not start with negative assumptions about the person across from you. You have to be able to, to enter in and create a space in which the stranger feels comfortable being near you. That's called hospitality. And too many of us have not learned the lessons that we lost because we got scared. In fact, the ancient world, if you didn't open your home up to a stranger who came into your town, you were considered sinful. That's how much hospitality was expected. Today, we think you're crazy if you bust out the best food for the stranger who walks down your block. We are, we are afraid of people. And so opening up your life to others is, is hard. And our politics and everything else is teaching us to think hostility towards the other to the different person. And what I'm calling you guys to do is to take the opposite tack, to take the risk to be known and to know. Because if you open your life up, you're aiming to be known and you're aiming to know. You've got to get to know people. You've got to get to talk to people. You've got to open up people in your house. Here, here's some basic ideas. Number one, if you're single, invite people into your home. Invite people into your home. You're like, you ain't seen my home. Yeah, and I, if, you, if I've seen your home and you're saying my home is nasty, I can't invite people over, it's probably, it's probably like building on itself, you know? I don't invite people over because of the way my home is, and I don't, my home is the way it is because I don't invite people over. Invite somebody over, watch how fast you clean your home. Now, I'm not saying, like, introduce them. I'm not saying introduce them to your bedroom. You know, I'm, I'm saying just the, ba- the basic areas in the bathroom, and you're good to go. But invite people into your home. Mar- singles, invite married people into your home with their children. Invite them into your house. Have an opportunity for them to connect in your life so you have a chance to share the recipe you've been learning. So you have the chance to engage in hospitality. You can invite people in your home that are different than you. And I get right now, a lot of single people are going, why are you putting this all on us, man? All the married people need to open up their home too. Yes, they do. But here's the thing. You can't expect from other people what you don't do yourself. We need to be the kind of people that we expect others to be. Isn't that what Jesus said? Do unto others as you would have them do to you. Do you look for hospitality? Be hospitable. Invite singles, invite friends, invite neighbors, invite others into your home. Invite them into your interests, invite them into your lives. I get some of us are like, I can't invite people into my home. I can't invite people into my stuff. Why? Because I don't own my home. You're renting from somebody or maybe you, you live in your parents' house. Trust me, you can still do this. Coming from a man who rented a room to a single lady from our church, we would come home after a date, my wife with her kids, like family night, we come home. We found like 10 people in our home watching movies that we didn't even know. And she, she had invited them over. And it was a huge community thing. We'd put the kids away. We'd come down. We'd sit down talk with them. It was fine. We were cool with that. I'd go up to bed. We'd, we'd fall asleep. We'd come downstairs. There'd be three people sleeping on my couch. I had no clue who they were. And it's like 10 o'clock. I'm going, and the kids are like bouncing on them. Boing, boing. <laughs> These are strangers. They're bouncy. It's just like... But it was awesome. We loved that she was a community builder and invited people into the home. Now, you need to make sure that the people you're renting from are cool with that. You need to make sure that your parents understand that you need this community and that you need to be able to use that. But open your home up in hospitality. Open your life up in hospitality. Invite them into your interests. Well, I have a friend, a very good friend who is single. And early on in our friendship, as we were kind of developing that friendship, he gave me a call up one day and said, hey, I love Shakespeare, and I wanna, I've got these tickets for, um, to see uh, Macbeth out in Pasadena at this playhouse. And I'm like, he's like, do you want to go? I'm like, 
I've never done anything like this before. Sure, that sounds like fun. Yeah, so two dudes got in a car, drove to Pasadena, and went to dinner and got up and went, you know, watched a play together, got back in and drove, and we had a blast. Great conversations, awesome opportunities to get in, in, into talking about Shakespeare and whether it's how you use all, just all kinds of crazy stuff. But he opened his life up that was risky. You don't think that's risky? To be like, I like this, do you like this? If we both like this, that'd be great. Because that's what friendships are about. They're about shared interest. Too often, we want to jump to intimacy. We've lost the realm of, of friendship. And I advise you to go to uh, C.S. Lewis's book, Four Loves, and read his very long chapter on friendship. Because he talks through the concept of going from a companion to a friend. And companions have conversation. We banter with each other. You can be companions in the lobby. You can be companions out there, and we ought to be. But it's when you meet somebody who thinks the same way about something, you meet somebody who's into the same interests as you are, and you can just talk and riff off each other on that one subject that suddenly you found a friend. And from there, you begin to build and dive deeper into each other's life as you connect in that one interest together. And so companions become friends over like-minded things. And if you're like, I don't have any friends because nobody likes the things I'm into, expand your interests. (laughs) I'm serious. Um, One of the best ways I've made a good friendship with with my brother-in-law was because he was willing to expand his interests and I was willing to expand mine. He got into apologetics and into theology, and I got into baseball. And somehow we were able to meet in the middle and have great conversations and begin to build a friendship because we were both willing to expand our interests into areas we'd otherwise never desired to go. And as you do this, you'll have more opportunities. Now, another very important thing is to to be known and to know, so ask questions. But before we do that, I want to Uh, This slide reminds me, I want to give you guys an opportunity to know where you can meet up. Where do we connect with these things? We've done is we've done an important thing to give you an opportunity to connect with some companions. Obviously, this is going to give you only a chance to meet friends. And we we started a a meetup group. It's to just hang out and do stuff. Right now, it's between ages of 25 and 45. You're like, but I'm not 45. I'm older. Just lie. Go anyway. Um, The point is that we're really trying to give you guys a place where you can network, connect, and, and begin to build friendships. You got to have somewhere, and this is a group to get together to go watch movies, to get together to go pl- do whatever it is that is the interest of the, of the time to meet together and hang out and get to know other singles. But also as you invite people into your life, you're inviting anybody and everybody as you can so that you're, you're going that. And then when they're around you, this is what I want to say, ask questions. My wife and I are introverts and we, I do a lot of weddings and invariably I'm always placed at Sometimes I get placed at the table with people I know. I love that. Oftentimes I'm placed at the table with like the grandmas and the grandpas and, the, and everybody. And we're because I'm the pastor and I get the, I get the holy seat, right? You're just like, boink. <laughs> Other times I'm placed around all the drunk family members. I think they want me to preach or something. It's really kind of interesting. But um, keep them in control, pastor. And it's like, okay, this is fun. But invariably I get there and I'm nervous. I'm an introvert. Like I, it's hard after I've just done this. People want to. They don't want to talk to me because I'm the Mr. Holy Man. So my wife and I have to have the same conversation every single time. Hey, what questions are we going to ask? What questions, how do we want to, how do we want to engage people? And so we, we come up literally with a set of questions so we can engage the people around us. You know, awesome, what's your name? Hey, where'd you, where, where's your family come from? What do you do for a living? And from there, we'll just keep digging, keep digging, keep asking questions, keep developing the conversation. You know what we've discovered over the last several years we've done this? 
By the end of the night, we've never been asked a single question in return. I used to think that was me until I've heard it on podcast after podcast after podcast that ever since social media, we are so ready to celebritize ourselves. We're ready to tell you everything about us, but we don't give a rip about who you are. And the art of conversation has died if you're below the age of 30. Ask questions. Start learning how to probe and enjoy and in, enter into other people's lives and interests. Because the more you're interested in others, the more they ought to be interested in you. And as that becomes reciprocal, you begin to discover the places you line up. Older adults, start helping younger people learn to ask good questions, learn to engage in curiosity about human beings, and let's stop teaching us to be hostile. We don't need any more hostility. We need good old-fashioned curiosity. We need good old-fashioned investigation and conversation skills to return, or loneliness will stalk our land, and isolation is deadly. The so we need to live in community. Ask good questions. Set don't look for all your friends in the church. Singles, you do not have to look for all your friends in the church. You say, what? Pastor said I don't have to have all my friends in the church. That's right. Not all your friends are going to be spiritual family. And not all your spiritual family is going to be your friends. In fact, there is no indication anywhere in the scriptures you should not make friends with non-Christians. There is this concept that was out there for a few decades when I, was a, when I became a Christian that was like, no, if you have this ideological bubble or this Christian bubble or whatever bubble it is, you need to get out of that. You need to get away from everybody who's not like you and stay safe in the bubble. Otherwise, you might have sin rub off on you. <gasps> Newsflash, sin doesn't rub off. It's already inside of you. It can't rub off on you. Christ has saved us because we are sinners. Now, that doesn't mean you're not wise. We'll get into that in a second. But notice what Paul says. He says, I wrote to you in my letter to not associate with sexually immoral people. Don't even mess around with those people. Notice he stops. says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers, the idolaters of this world, since then you'd need, need to go out of the world. He's saying, don't hang out with hypocritical Christians who say they're Christians and live in sexual immorality. Who say they're Christians and swindle people. Who say they're Christians and are still worshiping other things. Those people are not your friends. Those people who are honestly that way and are not in the church, go ahead and make them your friends. Very different. Some of us have flipped that. You have really bad friends that shouldn't be your friends that claim they're Christians. When you can have all kinds of friends at your work, but you thought, I can't talk to them. They got a little Buddha on their table. You never know where your next friend might come from. All it takes is two of you doing a work together and find out that you have one thing in common and you like talking about that sport team or that game or that particular set of movies or whatever or genre or books or whatever. And instantaneously you have friendship. Now, you need to be wise about the friends. I'm not saying that's, that's not the case. But we need to realize that there is nowhere in Scripture that says you shouldn't be friends with non-Christians. Next big thing, and this is important for everyone who's single in the room and married in the room, stop sexualizing relationships. Stop sexualizing relationships in your mind. Our culture sexualizes all the relationships to the point that in, last night in service when I said, yeah, me and my buddy, we went and saw a movie in Pasadena. Together. I had a guy come up to me after I said this. He said, yeah, you know, I actually laughed when you said that because it does sound gay. 
That's what he thought. There is a stigma, and I'll say this, among single, among single men, and I've talked to many single men who feel super uncomfortable going and hanging out with another single guy at a bar or a restaurant or a, a movie or something like that because the assumption is they're gay. This is not new. In, 19, in the 1950s, when C.S. Lewis wrote The Four Loves, in the section on friendship, he had to write the sentence, it has become important that at this time I must argue that all that not all male friendships uh, that all male friendships have some gay underbelly agenda it was known in the 50s in that way now I I'm I'm here to tell you this is now washed into the female relationships as I've talked to many single women that it's uncomfortable for them to sit across from another female without people assuming sexual tones this has destroyed platonic relationships between men and women the weirdest thing is when you're sitting across from your sister and people go like, oh, you know, pastor, you should be sitting with a strange woman. It's my sister. <laughs> the point is that we've sexualized anytime we see two people together because that's what's on the mind of everybody. So gone so far that there was this famous set of movies that came out called The Lord of the Rings. Where this, where this hobbit Sam and this hobbit Frodo are going off on this journey to Mount Doom. And if you read the book, Sam at one point turns to Frodo and says, don't you give up on me, Mr. Frodo. I can't imagine living without you. I love you, Mr. Frodo. And there have been all kinds of articles explaining why this is a homosexual relationship and stuff like that. Except for the very fact that the man J.R.R. Tolkien who wrote it, wrote it as an argument against that argument, as an argument for friendship. Because nobody was writing about it any longer. Deep, satisfying fraternity and sorority has the word love written all over it. And you don't have to end it with, I love you, man dude. I don't say that to my little boys. I don't say that to my brother-in-law. Fraternity is deeply loving, but does not have anything to do with sex. Sex is about two naked people. Friendship is about two naked minds that know each other apart from all of its other societal accoutrements so that you need to build with time friendship. In fact, that's where we go from here. How do you continue to build it now that you have people, you've opened your life up, others are involved, starting to meet people, asking questions, you spend or live with these people and spend lots of time with your friends. Jesus lived with the 12 men. He spent lots of time with these 12 men. He knew them inside and out. They connected with each other, talking constantly about the kingdom of God, fixating and focused. They were people who lived with and spent lots of times. I believe it is imperative that if you are single, if you can, you should live with somebody else. You can't live alone. Isolation is deadly. Now, if you can't live with somebody else for whatever reason, you need to have people in your home constantly. You need to be an open door because you need community. We need to live in community. We need to spend lots of time with friends. It does a couple things. Number one, it helps you, keep, it helps you as you spend time with friends, pick better friends. 
Because you may have an interest, but you begin to discover this person's kind of dragging me in a weird way. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 12, verse 26, it says, One who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor. But if you look at the bottom of your page in the Bibles, you'll actually see that there's a little hyphen. There's another way to translate this, so they're not sure which is the better way. So they kind of put them both in. The other one says, The righteous chooses his friends carefully. But the way of the wicked leads them astray. In other words, he's saying you choose your friends carefully because you don't want them to lead you astray. And so there's a sense that you need to spend time with people so you see who they really are, so you know, well, I know we have this interest, but I need to draw a line. That's not good. I'm not saying just, hey, anybody and everybody. There are safe people and unsafe people. And in this case, you need time so you can discover who the safe people are and who the right people are that should be in your fraternity. Not everybody gets to be that close. But we want to choose wisely. That takes time. It also takes time to push past the, I'm the only one pouring out in this relationship. You ever been there before? I'm the one pouring out. I'm the one pouring out. They never call me back. They never set up a time with me. And, and what you need to be able to do is get past it. You need to address it and say, hey, you know, I feel like I'm the only one always reaching out. I would love for this, to, I would love for this relationship to grow. Or can we get, can, you know, and you have that conversation. If you can push past that portion, the deeper portions of relationship begin. Intimacy is never found at the beginning of a relationship. Stop looking for it at the beginning. Don't, don't do that. It comes over time and it comes with safety and it comes with trust. And that's why you spend lots and lots of time with people and lots and lots of community. That's why we feel lonely because we all want to jump past the time portion. We're an instantaneous society, aren't we? We want microwave relationships. Put it in, 10 seconds later, I got intimacy. Nope, ain't going to happen. You're going to get burned and hurt and you're going to get manipulated. What you need is time so you know each other, you know each other's characters. That's why I would argue that if you have some companions or some friends that you're looking to form a fraternity, start a small group with those people. Don't just go join a random small group, sit yourself down and be like, hi, I'm Greg and uh, I'm an alcoholic. And uh, everybody's like, ah, wrong group. Sorry. You know, you got to have that safe group where that's possible. You can do that in AA and ever, or you can do that and in, in celebrate recovery because that's what it's there for. But you don't go intimate immediate. You need a friendship and you bring them together. And it's in that friendship zone and that small group of regular meeting that then you begin to build and grow and develop. But it should be those safe friends that you begin that journey with. And you drive in deep in that way. Now, how do you keep this community? And if you finally have a chance to form it, you start seeing fraternity. It comes in the keeping. It comes in time. The way you keep this is by supporting each other. Hear me. This is super important. The next uh, one another is bear one another's burden and so fulfill the law of Christ. Too many of us are so busy with our own stuff, we never wind up helping one another. And when that happens, you won't keep those community, you won't keep that community. In fact, we'll create a situation where we hate that community because it's no help for us. It's just busyness. But a community that bears your burdens, a community that lifts you up, that helps you out. It's your friends. In our cases, uh, maybe it's your small group or your friend group, and, and that's not just the church. But what we have to do is bear one another's burdens so we can love one another. This looks differently. If you're a single person, you're welcoming people into your home. The reason why I say you need to welcome married people into your home, you need to welcome all kinds of people into your home, older and younger, is because there are some single women in this room right now. You have broken things in your house and you've never fixed them because you just don't know how. And you don't have the money to go hire somebody to come fix it. 
And you don't have a fix-it friend. And having a community that bears one another's burdens, there's likely somebody in there who goes, I can fix that. I'll come over. I can turn YouTube on. We'll get done. There are men who have stuff broken in their homes because they're not fix-it guys. They're the guys who break things when they try to fix things. You know those guys? And they're single. And they need just as much help. And no guy's going to go, I don't know how to fix that. That just doesn't feel right as a guy. But if you've got a friend, you'll be willing to say that to a friend. The point is that we need to bear one another's burdens. We need to carry each other, pray with each other, support each other. You need somebody who can follow this verse. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. If you have no true friend who can hear your sins and still care about you, if you have no true friend who can see your worst and still say, I'm still here, you are lonely. Guarantee it. Until you find a person who you can be that open with, you are going to struggle having a fraternity or a sorority. You are going to hide, play games, and disappear. You have to have somebody who confess your, you confess your sins to, keep you accountable, who can pray with you. It's in there that you're healed. Too much of our culture hides. Too much of our time is hostility, and so we keep ourselves away, and we do not engage in this kind of depth. But this is what we need. And you can, single men and women, you can be that for married couples. A young, the young lady who rented our house, she lives halfway across the world now. And she still to this day is one of the greatest boons to my wife. They, they mutually carry each other's burdens through prayer and conversation all the time. Because they get you need this kind of level. And they've spent years and years and years pouring into each other. And they are sisters. They are totally sisters. And I want that for you guys as well. And finally, when you have that, you'll have the ability to build each other up. As it says, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. The idea here is that you would build each other up means to exhort the bad in each other, to point out the bad in each other. It's a good friend who can walk up and poke you in the chest, right? And then encourage the good. It's a good friend that can walk up and be this to you. Faithful are the wounds of a friend and profuse are the kisses of an enemy. You want a friend who can wound you and care about you, can take the risk to ruin your relationship, to tell you what they really see. Some of us, that's what we need. We need somebody to come up and tell us, you really stink with people, right? Or the way that you walk around makes you look like you're angry. You need to change. You need a friend who's willing to be a mirror to you that you can go like, I hate your guts because you told me that, you know, no. And they're just like, sure, I hate my guts. I'm just trying to help. That's a good friend. If you surround yourself with people who are like, I love you, you're awesome, you're amazing, woohoo! Be careful. Kisses of an enemy are dangerous. And so as you dive into this, realize what you need is somebody who's going to exhort the bad and encourage the good. What do I mean by encourage the good? There are times in your life, in my life, where my friends, you're going to find yourself in that depressed state. Down you feel like your calling has gone nowhere. You feel like you've wasted years. You're overly fixated on the social clock. You've forgotten the reminders. You feel dry with God. You're just going to lose your way. It happens to all of us. 
And you need that friend. You need that group of friends who can sit you down. As I had to sit with one of my friends once. And I had to remind him who he was in Jesus. Who reminds you of the value of who you are and points you back to the vision that you've lost about yourself. Larry Crabb, in his book, Connecting, clearly states, this is the best kind of relationship where you have people who see you for all your faults and all your misery and all your garbage, but see what God is doing and sees all the hope and the beauty and the transformation he's working in. And they can point you to that and they can lift you up and they can hold you up. When you've lost your own vision, they remember who you are. That's a fraternity. That is built from having companions opening your life, building those friendships so that as they grow and they deepen, they become brothers and sisters. As you hold each other up, build each other up, as you support each other, this is the essence of community. This is what I hope all of you would find. Because isolation is deadly. So let's live in community, all of us together. You know, one simple way to apply that, don't rush away from here today. Stop and hang out. Have a donut. And then talk to each other while chewing on it. You know, make sure you swallow first, but connect with each other in the courtyard. Go over under the, under the, the shade over here and just connect. Be open with each other's lives. And that way we begin to build community get in more of that next week, even deeper on the spiritual family portion, but for now, I just want to pray for you. So let's pray. Father, I do. I lift up this congregation. I lift up my single brothers and sisters in the room who right now are feeling like, God, how am I supposed to do this? Maybe they feel the overwhelming sense of rejection. Lord Jesus, you were rejected, and yet you kept building community. Would you meet them in their rejection? Would you heal them? God, if they're just looking around, wondering where do they go, bring them the opportunity to connect with other people and that let that community be fostered and developed and grow, that they may have brothers and sisters who are willing to lean in, that they may have friends who are willing to tell them the truth. And God, may you just allow us to lower the hostility and fear and open our hearts and our lives up and take the risk to be known and to know so that you might use us and shape us so that we do not live in isolation, but live in the community as you taught us to. And I ask that you would help them to do that in the name of Jesus. Amen.